0: Bernie Sanders announces the suspension of his presidential bid for the Democratic nomination, the Internal Revenue Service begins to send out the first wave of stimulus checks, and we examine the apparent decline in satisfaction with life. I'm Eli Kelson and this is the Teenager's Guide to Politics. Hey everyone, welcome to the second episode of the Teenager's Guide to Politics. And before we get started today, I just wanted to quickly describe what the premise of this podcast is about, since most people beginning to listen may have not listened to this first episode and where i explain what i want to do with this podcast so one of my goals was when i was creating this podcast was to simplify the news down into basic segments where anyone can be informed and have a firm foundation on how american politics behave secondly i want people to be influenced by the facts and not rhetoric so my job is to inform people of the facts and then you can formulate your personal opinion from there And finally, I don't want any of my listeners to be misled by politicians' agendas, and I want to help develop critical thinking skills in order to tell if a politician is lying. And again, thanks for checking out my podcast. I hope you enjoy today. Alrighty, so first up today, we'll begin with our corona numbers update, as this is the most pressing issue at this country's moment. And according to John Hopkins University in the United States, there are about 586,000 confirmed cases and 23,000 confirmed deaths. However, There is uplifting information that has been made public. An influential model tracking the coronavirus pandemic in the United States now predicts that fewer people will die and fewer hospital beds will be needed compared to its estimates from last week. As of Monday, the model predicts that the virus will kill, in total, 64,766 people in the United States over the next four months, with just under 1.000. 141,000 hospital beds being needed. That's 12,000 fewer deaths and 121,000 fewer hospital beds than the model estimated on Thursday. A massive infusion of new data led to the ingestments according to the model's maker, Dr. Christopher Murray, who serves as the director of the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington School of Medicine. Dr. Murray also commented that the model essentially predicts how social distancing measures will affect the trajectory of coronavirus in the United States. Everyone agrees that social distancing measures will save lives, and how quickly the distancing works and how dramatically it reduces infections has not been made clear. When the model was first released, the only place that had reached its coronavirus quote-unquote peak was Wuhan, China, according to the IHME researchers. But as of Monday, seven locations in Spain and Italy appear to have reached their apexes as well, providing a flood of new data for the model to analyze. Those regions seem to have reached their peaks more quickly in the wake of social distancing measures, according to the researchers That means that some states, such as Florida, Virginia, Louisiana, and West Virginia, are now expected to hit their peaks earlier than previously expected, potentially giving them less time to prepare. Seeing this influx of new data suggests that social distancing policies, have had a tremendous impact on the transmissibility of the virus. While states that are not as proactive, such as the ones that I've already stated a few moments back, being Florida, Virginia, Louisiana, and West Virginia, will have a greater strain on their medical resources, possibly forcing them to outsource patients to other states this would create some of the most substantial states disputes against one another this nation has ever seen this is due to the notion that healthcare is arguably the most complex of the institutional systems with which people interact on a regular basis in every county and state healthcare systems combines to differing degrees public state administrations and private market economics for insurance and provision of care this would pave the way for individuals being outsourced to a different state for medical care having different dues to pay rather than if they were treated in their home state situations such as the following would develop where a patient who is in an unconscious condition would be transported out of state for treatment because he or she is unable to form a logical thought to care for themselves later after after the patient has recovered from the virus they would possibly sue the state because they saw a 345 percent increase in this medical bill for the transportation costs leading to several congestions in the legal system for years to come, leading to the more pressing matters to be put on hold while the state continues to sort out the medical expenses. However, I just want to reinstate that there is an enormous amount of speculation that is still continuing with the models and that this data could be infused with new facts and variables where it could lead to an even smaller amount of people dying, which some people have suggested. And this is bringing up the question with many of the officials and authorities at the federal government level, where they're suggesting the fact that data has been skewed across the entire globe, where it's completely different from each country's and their independent situation. So it really kind of depends on each country's own personal response to the crisis. And some have been suggesting that China has been having some well let's just say false data that they report to the world health organization so moving on to across the pacific chinese authorities said tuesday they will end a two-month lockdown of the most coronavirus cases hit hubei province at midnight as the domestic cases of what has become a global pandemic subside people with a clean bill of health will be allowed to leave the provisional government said easing restrictions on movement that were unprecedented in scale The city of Wuhan, where this virus was first detected in December, is to remain locked down until April 8th. The move to end the lockdown showed the authorities apparent faith in the success of the drastic measures as they try to kickstart the world's second largest economy and put money in the pockets of workers, many of whom have gone weeks without pay. It remains unclear, however, which cities and provinces, including Beijing, the capital, would allow people from Wubei to enter their jurisdictions. Nevertheless, China's statistical data that has been released from the officials is dubious to do to uncharacteristic patterns of the virus transmissibility in the country. One reason that the official data from China is highly dubious is because... Ill-advised health policies in other countries, since studies based on information from China are the first to use to understand COVID-19, countless cases of people dying at home in Wuhan have been described in social media posts, while probably never go on statistics. And while a report by Shisheng on the Chinese province of Wulongjiang said that a considerable percentage of asymptomatic cases have been reported, which amounts to about 50% more known infections in China, according to South China Morning Post report. On classified government data. The World Health Organization takes numbers reported at Beijing by face value. And moving somewhat towards the World Health Organization as a topic, there has been some recent controversy surrounding the director and his dealings with the coronavirus pandemic at large. Tedros Adaman Gaurisius, I'm pronouncing that completely wrong, but that's okay, campaign to rewrite his questionable past has been wondering whether he is the right fit to lead the global agency through the coronavirus pandemic. Tedros, landed his current job as the World Health Organization director after three rounds of secret ballot voting where he defeated Dr. Santi Nastar of Pakistan and Dr. David Nabarro of Britain. Just ahead of the vote, Tedros was accused of covering up three cholera epidemics in Ethiopia when he was the health minister there. Tedros denied the allegations and claimed that they were made part of a last-minute smear campaign against him. At the time, Lawrence Goston, the director of the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law, called out Ethiopia's long history of denying cholera outbreaks even as they were going through them and said some of those outbreaks took place at Tedros Watch. Goston said he went public with his concerns because he feared that Tetros, at the helm of the World Health Organization or who the agency might lose its legitimacy. Let's dive a d- little deeper into the childhood and past of Tedros, because this has not been reported very much, and I was curious, So, which is becoming the greatest indicator on whether he harbors malintent for the general public. Tedros grew up in northern Ethiopia's Tigray region. After his younger brother died from measles, he, quote, vowed to push for universal healthcare coverage. Tidros became a member of the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, which became a pro- Protracted rebellion against the military government and was crucial in the 1991 overthrow of the Mingshu Hailem, Ethiopia's Marxist dictator. The v- victory resulted in swamping out an Abraham dominated government, which one led by the Tigray leaders, which led to more than a decade of conflict. General Abe Galao. Claims that Tedros was one of the top three members of the TPLF and that the party is ultimately responsible for the corruption, killing, torture, mass detention, land grab, or, dis- or displacement of thousands of people, he wrote in the Ethiopian Registrar. The United States State Department has classified the TPLF as a terrorist organization due to its violent activity before it became part of the ruling coalition and the government of Ethiopia in May 1991. So, like, in conclusion, there is ultimately no divine. The fact that this man has a rather complex past, where he was involved with some dangerous organizations that are established throughout the world. However, I don't believe that this man harbors any malintent or hate for the general public, and want, and he wants probably to help the world community in any way he can. But he has been been used as a mouthpiece for China because China advocated for his election or postment of the director and his position. But he has had rather irresponsible conduct with businesses and with foreign agents uh, authoritarian governments such as russia and china Alrighty, moving on to some more domestic news we have some campaign 2020 news for you on april 8th bernie sanders campaign officially announced that they would be suspending their presidential bid in the 2020 due to a quote a virtually impossible chance in becoming the nominee end quote here is the moment that bernie sanders announced that he would be suspending his campaign
1: which takes me to the state of our presidential campaign. I wish I could give you better news, but I think you know the truth, and that is that we are now some 300 delegates behind Vice President Biden, and the path toward victory is virtually impossible. So while we are winning the ideological battle, and while we are winning the support of so many young people and working people throughout the country, I have concluded that this battle for the Democratic nomination will not be successful. And so today, I am announcing the suspension of my campaign. Please know that I do not make this decision lightly. In fact, it has been a very difficult and painful decision. Over the past few weeks, Jane and I, in consultation with top staff and many of our prominent supporters, have made an honest assessment of the prospects for victory. If I believed that we had a feasible path to the nomination, I would certainly continue the campaign. But it's just not there. I know that there may be some in our movement who disagree with this decision, who would like us to fight on to the last ballot cast at the Democratic Convention. I understand that position. But as I see the crisis gripping the nation, exacerbated by a president unwilling or unable to provide any kind of credible leadership, and the work that needs to be done to protect people in this most desperate hour, I cannot in good conscience continue to mount a campaign that cannot win and which would interfere with the important work required of all of us in this difficult hour. But let me say this very emphatically. As you all know, we have never been just a campaign. We are a grassroots, multiracial, multi-generational movement, which has always believed that real change never comes from the top on down, but always from the bottom on up. We have taken on Wall Street, the insurance companies, the drug companies, the fossil fuel industry, the military industrial complex, the prison industrial complex, and the greed of the entire corporate elite. That struggle continues, While this campaign is coming to an end, our movement is not.
0: By dropping out of the race, Sanders is foregoing any effort to soldier on purely as a movement candidate for his progressive agenda. That prospect, though appealing to many of his most ideological supporters, appeared to dim recently amid the deadly coronavirus outbreak, which has shut down campaign rallies, delayed upcoming primaries, and consumes the public attention. The Biden campaign quickly released a statement in which Joe congratulated Bernie by creating a, quote, a grassroots movement in American politics for decades to come, end quote. And here's his statement. Bernie Sanders has put his heart and his soul into not only running for president, but for the causes and issues he has been dedicated to his whole life. So I know how hard a decision this was for him to make and how hard it was for the millions of his supporters especially young voters, who have been inspired and energized and brought into politics by the progressive agenda he has championed. Said Biden in the statement, Bernie has done something rare in politics. He hasn't just run a political campaign, he's created a movement. End quote. Nonetheless, there is still an odd moment when Bernie Sanders specifically said that while his campaign has been suspended, he would remain on the ballot and try to garner as many delegates as possible in the lead-up to the Democratic National Convention. Mm -hmm. This is very unconventional when considering a presidential nomination run because throughout the entire history of American politics, when a candidate gives their consolidation speech, they announce for their delegates to support whoever they endorse. But for Bernie, he decided to stay on the ballot. Now, why is that? I think we must look at what happened to Bernie Sanders' campaign in 2016 to examine his motives for this unconventional move in politics. So Sanders was filled with resentment and on edge, feeling like he got no respect all while holding on to his his head to the enticing but remote chance that Hillary Clinton may be indicted before the convention. Bernie began his nomination in 2016 as a secondary or even tertiary candidate to many voters across the nation. However, his message started to ring true for younger voters, who were eager to vote for their first candidate. Bernie's message of free college and the cancellation of trillions of dollars in student debt, while not realistic, helped him rise as a candidate into the number two spot behind the well-established and well-connected Hillary Clinton. With just weeks left until the Democratic National Convention, Bernie was surging in the polls with some estimates suggesting that he may even win a majority of the delegates. Yet at the Nevada State Party Convention, Bernie blamed the Democratic political establishment for the inciting of the violence against his campaign and he suggested that the party wanted him to lose at all costs. This speech effectively ended his political aspirations for 2016 with the more moderate wing of the Democratic Party, leading to a 54% victory for Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders' 48% in the primaries. While Bernie continues to dismiss this as a pass, his recent consolidation speech of 2020 shows that he still hides some resentment for the Democratic establishment by choosing to withhold his delegates at the convention. Ultimately, however, all credible projections suggest that with 99% certainty that Joe Biden will win the nomination without any needing some of Sanders' delegates. With Bernie Sanders' political career effectively over, I want to examine the legacy and the transformation Bernie has left for the Democratic Party. There are many big picture victories that Sanders has pointed to as the lasting legacy of his campaign. He says he won the generational debate citing his margins among younger voters. He also has declared victory in the ideological debate, pointing to his issues like universal health care, aggressive steps to address climate change, and free college education that has gone from fringe proposals to the mainstream of the party. Another Sanders strength was his dedication to support of young voters, a bedrock of his campaign in 2016. Even though he lost states by large margins to Biden, Sanders carried a majority of votes under 30 years old. Politicians are old people, said Weitzman, a college student. It's our future at stake, not theirs. I think young people are fed up and they know that we need a progressive future. End quote. This notion that Bernie Sanders was able to stimulate voters despite the fact that he is 78 years old himself, well over the average age of politicians on Capitol Hill of 54 years old, gave rise to young politicians that burst onto the national scene such as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, and Ilhan Omar. That without Sanders' national campaign years earlier would not be sitting in the House of Representatives as of this moment right now. To conclude, Bernie Sanders' years of political advocacy, whether you personally deem his policies proposals as logistical or not, the political climate in the United States would be much different than it were if he were not involved. The types of proposals he has made will continue to change the landscape in politics as the younger voters mature and become a key to winning presidential elections in the near future. Okay, moving on to the financial aspect of the implications created by the coronavirus. On Saturday, the Eternal Revenue Service announced that it sent out the first round of stimulus checks to Americans' families. Quote, the IRS deposited the first economic impact payments in a taxpayer's bank accounts today. We know many people are anxious to get their payments. We'll continue to issue them as fast as we can. End quote. The IRS wrote Saturday evening on Twitter. Deposits will continue in the days ahead, starting with people who have filed tax returns for 2018 or 2019 and authorized direct deposits. Others, including people who haven't filed tax returns, authorized direct deposits, or received Social Security, will probably have to wait weeks or months before seeing their money. The distributions are a part of a $2.2 trillion economic package passed by Congress in March which has ultimately become a $6.3 trillion economic relief package due to the Federal Reserve's actions. Under the economic relief package, individuals are due up to $1,200 and couples will receive $2,400 plus $500 per child. But payments start phasing out for individuals with adjusted gross incomes of more than $75,000. The amount will then be reduced by $5 for every additional $100 of adjusted gross income and those making more than 99000 will not receive anything. That income threshold will be doubled for couples. For those who haven't filed a return for either 2019 or 2018, the IRS urges them to do so quickly, including for those who don't normally need to file a tax return. That includes individuals who earn less than $1,200 in 2019 and couples who earn less than $2,400. This is all the information that I was able to garner and collect that in regards to the stimulus checks reaching Americans. However, other news regarding the U.S. economy during the coronavirus pandemic. Another 6.6 million people filed for unemployment benefits last week, according to the U.S. Department of Labor. As American workers continue to suffer from devastating job losses, furloughs, and reduced hours during the coronavirus pandemic, it was the second largest number of initial unemployment claims in history. Just to reemphasize that, the entire history of the United States yesterday and this week was the most it had ever reached since the department of labor started tracking the data in 1967. Altogether, about 16.8 million American workers, making up about 11% of the entire U.S. labor force, have filed initial claims for jobless benefits in just the prior three weeks alone. About 7.5 million workers filed for their second week of benefits or more last week, according to the Wall Street Journal. Economics are... Expecting job losses will continue, with the unemployment rate peaking in the double digits sometime in the next few months, up from 4.4% in March. This week's unemployment insurance claims are yet another indication of the recessionary dynamics created by the coronavirus pandemic, Moody's Senior Vice President Robert Williams wrote in an emailed comment. That said, the government economic relief packages and policies by the Federal Reserve, including an additional $2.3 trillion in loans announced Thursday morning, will soften the blow a little bit bank of america economics predicts employers will cut between 16 million and 20 million jobs with the unemployment rate peaking at 15.6 percent between now and june if that's the case it could take at least a couple of years for the unemployment to return to its pre-pandemic levels still economists are hoping the recovery from this downhill will be faster than the long drawn-out recoveries from the great recession and the great depression but ultimately this will depend on the coronavirus outbreak and how it is contained People and economists are hoping to see what they call a V-Sherp recovery, where initially this, the everyone's portfolios in the stock market dip down very quickly due to external conditions. But then after every, everything gets contained and is reduced to the severity, it will shoot back up as we have been seeing lately. However, this is not going to be true because we don't know the future and the stock market does not operate as if I am a genie. So we will have to wait and see in the near future. Anyhow, moving on to a topic that is outside the influence of political policies and that is directly related to the well-being of society as a whole, and that is happiness. It seems as though that in modern society in which we all live in, people are more depressed, more anxious, and more suicidal than ever before despite the fact that the majority of people have a better living condition than any other people in the United States history and in the rest of the human history. The question that I have been turning around in my head for the past couple of days is pertaining to the perceived decline in happiness, and that it has been either a symptom of something unusual going on in society, or it's just that people are more comfortable talking about it with one another due to like social media platforms, which makes it more less awkward, I would say, talking about it. And the answer that has come to me in the least part is the complexity of our society. It isn't certain on how the future will present itself and it isn't certain that what you knew in the past is going to be sufficient for you to move forward into the future. So there's lots of opportunity, but it's very complex and it's not easy to keep up in our fast and ever-changing world. If we look around the world, you might think that the happiest people are those who have the highest standard of living and is sufficiently past the average, but this is not the case. You would think that having instability and death surrounding your daily routine would affect your outlook and really highlight the negatives that appear in your life. But if we take a look at countries where the mortality rate from malaria and other diseases have been, that have been conquered in developed countries are extremely high for 21st century standards, we have some of the most gratified lifestyles and are thankful for their humble situation. But living in a highly fluctuating and ever-uncertain situation where any day people can lose their job creates this perception such as every day you're thinking that, okay, this has to be done, and then this has to be done. Oh, and I have to make sure this gets done before dinner. And as a result, you gain a stable income and are financially independent, leading to security and health. But that necessarily isn't happiness, and it's no certainty from the freedom of anxiety. And I always say that most people in the modern world, oddly enough, have far too much to do on a daily basis for a fresh, fresh stress-free life. Excuse me. Adults have a career families and a couple of kids to attend to and it takes over 60 hours a week of flat out peer work yeah so and that would be too much and then i also think that because our society is philosophically polarized with all the different aspects pertaining to religion and political beliefs leads to instability and that is ultimately reflected in the divisiveness seen through our society today people are doubtful that their existence on this planet has any meaning having such a nihilistic viewpoint, then it's easy to be overwhelmed by the doubts and existential angst that leads to the life of misery, and I think that this is a mistake because I think that your life can be meaningful. It's proportional to the responsibility that you take on by what you can learn by watching when you are engaged in the world. I can also not shake the suspicion that the rise of social media and the interaction of these platforms into our daily lives have been influenced the way we can compare to one another and therefore less lessen the gratitude one can express because the external pressures of society tell them that they are not competent with their life. One recent study that I examined that looked at the links between Facebook's use and well-being, quote, we found that the more you use Facebook over time, the more likely you are to experience negative physical health, negative mental health, and negative life satisfaction, says study author Holly Shasky, assistant professor and social media researcher at the University of California, San Diego. Not only can social media affect our mental state, but it can also disrupt our circadian rhythm or sleep cycles. Using social media platforms before bed delays our body's internal clock, aka your circadian rhythm, which suppresses the release of sleep-inducing hormone melatonin and makes it more difficult to fall asleep. This is largely due to the short wavelength or artificial blue light that is emitted by these devices. The more electronic devices that a person uses in the evening, the harder it is to fall asleep or stay awake. Besides increasing your alertness at a time when you should be getting sleepy, which in turn delays our bedtime, she uses the device before turning in delays the onset of REM sleep. REM stands for rapid eye movement. And it reduces the total amount of rapid eye movement sleep and comprises alertness the next morning. Over time, these effects can add up to the significant chronic deficiency in sleep. Anyways, sorry for going off on a tang- tangential point that. I made at the end of the podcast, but I think that this information that I wanted to share with you is far more important than some of the political news that have been going around recently because we've been being swamped by the coronavirus news and there's nothing really else to report on. So I just wanted to give you an uplifting message that you do matter in life and that no matter how depressing your situation, you can come out on the other end of it. Okay, for one thing that I like today. There's this book that I've been reading and recently and it's called Crime and Punishment and it's a rather famous piece of Russian literature and I just want to start off by saying that I love this book. I love how Dostoevsky, the author, how he once was quoted saying, at first, art imitates life. Then life will imitate art. Then life will find its very existence from the arts. In Rodin's life, this is pertaining to the book and Rodin's the character, philosophy was used to understand life. When he made his life comfort to his philosophy and then he found his very meaning for existence in his philosophy. This novel was considered one of the first modern pieces of writing due to the ethical and moral dilemmas that the main character, Rodin, experiences. I think that this book ties in wonderfully with the world that we are experiencing right now and that the fact that we are contained in our very thoughts and how that that can make or break our sanity. Anyways, alright guys, that's all for today. I just wanted to thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next time on the Teenage Guide to Politics.